Thank you, music team, for that incredible time of singing. Well, we're continuing in our series here in the church and those of us joining us online uh, in The Imperfect Disciple. And this week in your life groups, you're doing two chapters instead of one. And they also happen to be the two of the longest chapters. So I apologize, because at the very beginning I promised an easy book with short chapters that it would only take you about 10 or 15 minutes to get through, and then I switched you up with Crunch Week this week. And, uh, but the two chapters go hand in hand together. It's the rhythm of listening and the rhythm of speaking, or as Mr. Wilson phrases it, the rhythm of spilling your guts. And... Uh, The idea of these two chapters in our study as we focus in and lean into discipleship and how we walk with God is that the Word of God and prayer are the primary ways in which we listen and speak. Our most basic understanding of the nature of God, and I mean foundational to every other thing that we know about God and can know about God and believe about God, is this. He is a God who speaks. God makes himself known, or to use the beautiful biblical word that Paul invented, he manifests himself. He has put himself before us, and he speaks to us so that we can know him. We can't get anywhere in our knowledge of God or in our discipleship or our understanding of God unless at the very beginning we understand he is a God who speaks and we can hear him speak. The first lines of the book of Hebrews begins building on that foundation. It says in Hebrews 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom Also, he created the world. So here's the writer of Hebrews, and he's saying, let's start at the beginning. God speaks to us. He spoke through the prophets. We have the scripture, and now he speaks through his son, the Messiah. In other words, God never intended us to grope in the dark and try to find him or to figure him out. God spoke and wrote and sent and lived and breathed and talked among his creation so that we might hear him and listen to him and know him. And what that means very simply is that that if you have spent much of your life trying to figure out who God is or what God is or where God is, and chasing after speculations and theories about who he is. You do not need to search aimlessly for God in philosophies or religions or metaphysics or in crystals or in secrets of the universe, because God is a God who speaks. You can simply open up God's word and let him speak to you. You do not need to go searching for him. He's here in the pages of his book. He's in the scripture. He's in the word of God and in the person of his son. It's in the scriptures, and it's in the living presence within them of Jesus that are meant to fill every follower of God, every disciple with the knowledge of him and how to live. And so as we press in on this idea of discipleship, this is where Mr. Wilson is going in these weeks. We have to begin with the fact that God is a God who speaks, and he speaks through his word, and he speaks through his son. So this morning we're going to lay the groundwork for how disciples are to listen and at the same time respond to the God who speaks. Let me just open in prayer. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as your disciples, we can come and it can fill us with our knowledge of you and that you speak to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit and by your Son. And Father, for those of us who are still seeking, we thank you that you manifest yourself in our presence, that you have never, from the very beginning, hidden yourself from us. Your intention from the beginning was to be known, and you have spoken, and you have appeared, and you have manifested yourself, and you have even come to live and breathe among us and speak to us. You are a God who speaks because you are a God who would be known. So for those seeking this morning, I pray that they would um, just understand that, that you are there to be discovered and to be found. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you open up your Bible, if you have your Bibles with you or your phones, as Meredith was talking about, uh, you can tap there uh, to Psalm 119. But if you open up the Word of God, if you open up the revelation of God to the very middle of it, to the heart of it even, you will find the longest psalm written. And its subject is the importance of the Scriptures themselves. The importance of the Bible in knowing the God who speaks and our response to the Christian life. Psalm 119 is both the Word of God and also a prayer to God as you read it. Just as it is at the heart of the Bible, it is the heart of our success as disciples. Psalm 119 instructs us how to use the Word of God to know Him and how to be searched out by the Word of God and to respond to Him. And as you're reading Psalm 119, you'll notice a few things. Not only is it the longest psalm, but it speaks relentlessly about the Word of God in various ways. First of all, it uses ten different words to describe the Word of God. The psalmist calls God's Word statutes, law, word, precepts, testimonies, rules, ways, commandments, decrees, and promises— All of these words encompass the way that God has spoken to us and how the psalmist hears and knows God. But then within these verses, there are descriptions of those things of God's word or descriptions of those things. He calls them righteous, wondrous, life, hope, better than gold and silver, righteous, sure, my delight, broad, sweeter than honey, a lamp for my feet, a heritage forever, fine gold, wonderful, right, tested, true, forever. These are all ways he describes the many things that God has spoken. And in addition to the descriptions of his word, he gives the qualities of God's word. He says they are righteous, they are trustworthy, truthful, faithful, unchangeable, eternal, illuminating, pure, wise, and valuable. This book, this chapter, is end-to-end about God's word. And it's very personal as well as instructional. It begins personally with the writer's own longing. And I want you to understand that word. He is longing, he is desiring, he is striving to be a faithful disciple and a follower after God. And it speaks to the power of God's will, or God's word, to see that accomplished in his life. And this is why this psalm is so instructional to us, those who would either know God or those disciples that want to know God better. Listen, in the very first five verses, how this longing comes through. 
Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Boy, that sounds like a disciple, doesn't it? Right? He wants to follow him. He wants to obey him. He wants to be pure. He wants to be steadfast. And you can hear his own personal longing to have that be true in his life. And those first five verses of this chapter introduce us to how that longing then is fulfilled. If you were to do some extra homework, you can read the whole of Psalm 119. Read it every day if you have time. There's 176 verses in Psalm 119 that give the answer to the question, how do I fulfill that longing? How does the Word of God accomplish this? But since I can't preach one verse every 18 seconds this morning, we are going to focus only on the first stanza of Psalm 119. We're just going to do one section of the entire chapter, and it will answer those questions. Psalm 119, 9 to 16 is the stanza we're going to do. It reads, how can a young man keep his way pure? That's the question, basically, we're going to answer. How can we be a disciple? How can we follow the commandments? And the short answer is, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That is a summary of how we as disciples use the revelation of the God who speaks to be faithful disciples. He says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. And this is important that we understand as disciples who depend greatly on God's word. What the psalmist wants and what he longs for is God himself. He says, I seek you. You are what I want, God, not your stuff, not a better life, not a solution to my problem. And isn't that too often sometimes, even as disciples, why we come to follow Jesus or why we come to God? Because it's what I want. I say to God that I, you know, I want you to fix my life or I want the goodness that I see in you or I want these things corrected or I even, I might even come and say, I want you to make me a better person so that I have more joy. But Christianity, in Christianity, God is the object. The psalmist says, I want you, God. And some people were asking Jesus pretty much this same question. What is the greatest commandment? What is the most important word for us as followers of God? And Jesus said in Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love God. Love God with your whole being. Be like this psalmist who desires God, who longs after God. That's the way of following Jesus. And the psalmist says that's what he does. He seeks after God with his whole heart. And he asks God to make it true of him. He says, don't let me wander from your commandments. Notice here, the source of the keeping is not the psalmist or the disciple, but God. 
He says, my heart seeks after you, God, and so now I pray that you don't let me wander. I don't trust my strength, it's your strength that overwhelms my will and constrains my love. The psalmist here says, I desire you and I want you, God, but don't you let me wander. It is your strength, it's not my will. The psalmist and this writer, as Charles Spurgeon puts it, is a believer who exerts himself but does not trust himself. His heart is in the walk with God, but his strength will not keep him unless the king is his keeper and the one who commands will make him constant in obeying him. And so the psalmist desires to be with God, but trusts God to keep him. And every time we begin to feel self-sufficient or believe we can manage our life just fine on our own, we suddenly discover as disciples that we're not as faithful as we thought. I don't know if you're like me. I think I'm a really good Christian and I'm walking really well with God and, you know, I've got this. I can figure out this Christian life and I start walking my walk with God on my own and then I get distracted by things and I go a day or two days or a week or a month or two months without being saturated in the Word of God and present and listening to God speak and I look up and I suddenly find that I'm no longer walking with God anymore because I've left the Word of God behind. I'm like a, a child in the supermarket who is distracted by all the things going on around them, and they grab onto somebody's pant leg and look up and suddenly realize it's not their mother. You know that feeling? We can do that as disciples. We can think we got this Christian life figured out, and we can start walking. We're seeking after God, and we got it. I'm going to church, and I'm doing this, and you know, then I'm going on in this in life, and then, but I'm leaving the Word of God behind, and I, you know, I go to grab God's pant leg, and I look up, and I realize I'm not actually following him anymore. That's the essence of this psalm. The psalmist is saying, I have to stay in the word of God and in the presence of God, and he is the one who will keep me with him. So how does he do it? That's the question. How does he use the word of God to do this? And the stanza elaborates all of these things. First of all, he treasures the word. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The disciple here, the psalmist, is saying, I have made the word of God sacred in my life. Like the Ten Commandments that we put in the Ark of the Covenant, not to be hidden, but so that those commandments would be preserved at the very center of the people's life with God. Those words from God were so treasured by the people of Israel that they were stored up, they were preserved so that they would preserve the people. The psalm writer doesn't want to just read the Word of God or just study the Word of God. He wants to store it, he wants to treasure it, he wants to hide it in his heart. And so as disciples, we can ask ourselves, are we doing that with the Word of God? Are we hiding it in our heart? Are we storing it up? I can ask myself this too, because when God's Word only has a place at the edge of my life, but not at the very center, when it's not at the heart of my life, I grow distant. If the Word of God is given that central, sacred place in our heart, the writer says then it has a preserving effect. He says literally, it can keep us from sinning. That means that it keeps us from turning away from God. It keeps us from being distracted by other things around us. It keeps us from aligning our minds with the world and rather aligns our mind with God. I was at a seminar with the street evangelist Brody Haight a couple of years ago, and one of the many phrases that he made struck with me with regard to the preserving effect and the discipling effect of the word in this way. Brody came to know Jesus when he was a drug user and a male stripper and an abuser and basically nothing in his life reflected God. And he said with regard to the small life group that he joined, he said, the Christians that were discipling me never attacked my sinful lifestyle, never condemned me for my spiritual failures. He said it was the Holy Spirit that discipled me. 
as I read the Bible, these things fell off. It has, it was two or three years of things falling off, and as I read the Bible, I was sanctified. That's the power of the Word of God in discipleship. You know, he had mentors around him, he had Christian Brothers and sisters, Christian aunts and uncles, Christian spiritual fathers and mothers. But he said it was the Holy Spirit through the Bible. As I read the Bible, these things fell off and I was sanctified. The Word of God disciples us. It's our best disciple maker. It preserves us and takes away our sin. So not only does this psalmist treasure the word and store it in his heart so it has this effect on him. He learns from the word of God. Verse 12, he says, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. The word teaches us. Most of us don't like this. We instinctively in our flesh rebel at being taught, especially as adults, because it implies we are either ignorant or wrong, right? As soon as somebody starts to teach you something or instruct you, they're basically saying you are not aware of something or you're wrong about something. And we sort of, before we even think about it, start thinking, you can't tell me my ways are wrong. You can't tell me I'm living my life differently. You know, don't judge me. How dare you say? But with teaching, there's a clear call to humility that comes with being taught. The very willingness to be taught implies humble recognition that the teacher is above the student. So humility is inherent in teaching. And that is the humility that we come to God's word with. The word of God is higher than us. We sit under the word and we are instructed by it. Isaiah 55, 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. And so if we're going to learn from the word as this disciple, this psalmist is, we need to humble ourselves before it. But how often, even as Christians, even as disciples, instead of treating the Bible as a teacher, we treat the Bible as the student. Oh, those backward Hebrews and the pre-enlightenment apostles. We need to bring this book up into modern times. We need to inform the text of how wrong it is compared to modern culture. And even Christians do this. But we're not meant to engage with the Bible as superiors. We're not even meant to engage with the Bible as equals. We are not peers with God, discussing our worldviews and weighing the merits of each. Far too many Bible studies and life groups slide into a group conversation with the Bible and its instruction taking the role of a participant among many. As though the Bible is sitting on the couch with a coffee and a biscuit beside everyone else, and the rest of the group is permitting the Bible to have some input on their views on life. And how it works. That's not how the word of God works in the life of a disciple. The scripture teaches us. And the writer here, the disciple here, has no such attitude. He's hungry for the teaching of scripture. He blesses God. He praises God for the fact that in the scriptures are found a fountain of wisdom and teaching for his life. So he treasures the word. He learns from the word. Thirdly, he declares the word. He says in verse 13, With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. This is what happens for us as disciples with the word of God. As we fill our hearts up with truth and wisdom and knowledge, they will then flow out of us. Jesus said, for out of the overflow of the heart of the mouth speaks. The good man brings things out of the good stored up in him, he says in Matthew 12. In other words, as disciples, Bible-saturated people have Bible bubbling up out of them. 
And as it does bubble up out of you and into your life, its impact increases. There's nothing better for affirming the goodness and the rightness of God's word than applying it to someone's life and seeing them respond to it. I mean, that's the drug I'm hooked on as a preacher, right? That's what has me excited every single day. Taking the word declaring the word and seeing people respond because they have a new excitement and a new joy and a new hope in the word of God that I have declared. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the delivery man. I'm just the dealer. There's nothing special about me, but there is everything right and good and wise about the word of God. And so as disciples become Bible-saturated and they treasure the word and they learn from the word, it starts to bubble up out of them and you start to declare the word to those around you so that when you're speaking to brothers and sisters and when you're speaking even to those who aren't in the church, you're speaking even unconsciously and consciously the wisdom and the truth and the rightness and the purity and the eternality of the word of God. And it just flows out of you. And as you declare the word and you see it have an effect on people, you know that it is good because it has this preserving and flourishing and thriving effect on people. The psalmist here says, With my lips I declare the rules from your mouth. God is speaking his statutes so that when you speak the word, it is from God's mouth through your mouth to the ears of those who are listening. You speak what God speaks, and when you are seeking God in your Bible reading, and he says, here I am in this verse, and here I am in that verse, and here I am in this, and here I am in that, and you speak that, that is the power of God's word to disciple you and the people that you know around you. But none of that will happen unless you are Bible-saturated and you speak it and you declare it. You have to be storing it up and you have to be teaching yourself and then declaring it and speaking it out to others. And that's what this disciple does. He declares the rules of God's mouth. Fourthly, he delights in the way of the Lord. It says in verse 14, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. The highlight of this verse is the emphasis it places on engaging our affection. Just, just notice the sentence structure here. The writer does not just delight in the word itself. Right? There are a lot of people who delight in the word of God, delight in the Bible. I do. I, I love the word and I love the Bible. But he doesn't just delight in the Bible and say, oh, This is a great book. There's so much here. No, he says, I delight in the way of your word. I delight in the life that comes out of your word. I delight in how I walk because of your word. It's the result, it's the outcome that he delights in, the pattern of life or the path that the word of God sets him on. He says, I delight in the way of your testimony. And you treasure what you love and what you treasure you spend time with. And his delighting and his treasuring of the word is where he wants to spend time with the word of God. It's inevitable that what you treasure and what you love is where you spend your time and what you want to know. When I met Wendy, I wanted to know everything about her. We could talk for hours about the smallest details of any part of her life. I spent every moment with her that I could, and my delight for her grew with my knowledge of her, and I anticipated the delight of walking with her in my life. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. I delight in the word, and I delight spending all of the time I can here to get to know your word, Lord, and to get to know you. And I delight in the life that I anticipate living with you in the word. And he says, for me as a disciple, there is no greater treasure. You could never pay me any price 
to take Wendy or Isaac, for that matter, away from... Well, there might be a price for Isaac, but there's no price for Wendy. No price for Wendy. It'd be a really high price for Wendy. Well, make me an offer. But you couldn't pay me any price to take Wendy out of my life. And I would pay any price to keep her in my life. And that's what the psalmist here says about the word of God. He says, there is no riches in this world you could pay me to take the word of God and the presence of God out of my life. And there is nothing I wouldn't pay to have God in my life. He delights in the word above all riches. He doesn't want a million dollars if it means losing God's continuous work with him and treasuring his way. Finally, fifthly, no, not finally, sorry, second, penultimately, fifthly, (laughs) meditates on the word. He says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. If you want to stay pure and delight in the ways of God, then you need to meditate and fix and focus on his word. You turn the word of God over and over in your mind and you lock your eyes on the word of God. And make it the path for your life. This meditation is filling your mind. It's not emptying it. This is setting our eyes on what is light and not what is dark. He says in in verse 105, farther down, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So this disciple, he has fixed his eyes on the word of God. Like Like a sailor at night seeing the lighthouse, he keeps his eye fixed on that so that he knows where not to go astray. And he knows the path that he is following along the coastline. The psalmist says, if I fill my mind with you and your word, then I will start to think and act biblically. And you see the transforming result of it. He gets his eyes fixed on the ways and the pattern of the life of God. And the inverse is also true. If I'm not thinking and acting biblically, if I do not see the patterns of God in my life or the fruit of the Spirit, it's because I don't have my mind filled with the precepts of God's Word. And so as a disciple, if you come to that place where you've wandered off in the supermarket and you are nowhere near God, and you look up and you've been hanging on to whatever, then you get yourself back into the Word of God and you fix your eyes on His ways and He will steer you back onto His paths. But we only do that when we meditate on the Word of God. It's preaching the Word of God to yourself to replace lies with truth. Meditating is replacing false identity with true identity, foolishness with wisdom, pride with humility, harm with healing, crooked paths with straight paths. As you meditate and dwell on the Word of God, It has this effect. Sixthly, this disciple, this psalmist, he nurtures delight in the word. Verse 16 says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now you might pause here and you might think, didn't he already talk about delighting and treasuring in the word? Yes, he did. But I want you to notice the grammar change in this verse. The grammar in this sentence is a little different than delighting in the word and delighting in the ways of God's word. It's the will statement here that's important. This sentence is structured in such a way that the writer is saying, I choose to delight in your statutes. Right? Verse 16 again, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. It isn't like two verses before where he just says, I do delight or I get delight from your testimony. Here the disciple is saying, this is how I will act. I will choose to delight. I will delight. I'm going to actively nurture delight in your statutes and in your testimony and in your commandments. 
Any disciple in a committed relationship will recognize this phase of it. There are times when we need to decide who we love and if we are going to consciously nurture that love by an act of our will. It becomes an act of our will for a time, not an automatic response, until it becomes a natural response again. It may surprise you that in high school and university, I had other options besides Wendy. And she had other options besides me, of course. Now, I'm not being totally unromantic when I tell you that especially later on in our relationship as we approached our marriage and even during our marriage, we made at various points in time decisions of our will to nurture our love for each other rather than love for someone else or some other love. There were transition points or there were milestones in our relationship where it became a choice, and it was an easy choice, but still a choice to say, I'm going to nurture my delight in my wife. And I'm not going to nurture my delight in other things, be it any other person, any other activity, any other hope. I'm not going to nurture delight in my career, in my self-satisfaction, in my riches, in uh, this activity or that activity or my other group of friends or this or that. I choose right now for this relationship to nurture my love in Wendy. And that's what this disciple is saying here. That's this verse. The writer says, I am going to nurture. I will delight in your statutes. Your word is where I'm going to go for delight. I'm not going to try to seek my delight or my satisfaction or put my hope in TED Talks or website blogs or YouTube personalities or yoga or keto diets or fashion or whatever the flavor of the Oprah month is these days. I'm going to nurture my delight in your word. That's how a disciple does it. Disciple, even when they are far from God, even when the word of God seems dry, even when it doesn't seem to be resonating with their heart, the disciple says, this is my life and I will nurture delight in this word. I'll read it a different way. I'll try a different book. I'll listen to a different speaker. I will take a different approach to it. I'll join a different Bible study. I'll, I'll do anything to make this work because I have to cherish this word. And the disciple is going to direct his will towards a love of the word of God and nurture it. But before you get the idea that this is somehow a self-accomplishment, I want you to bring you back to the introduction of this. This disciple and this psalmist, and everyone knows it is not by his will that this is accomplished. It's by the will of God. It's not by the strength of us as disciples that this happens. Just look at the prayer of this disciple a little further down in the chapter. He says in verse 36, Incline my heart to your testimonies and do not... And not to selfish gain. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. He's praying to God at that point. He's saying, God, you need to do the inclining. You have to do it. You're the one who leans my heart. It's the pull of your gravity that leans me into your orbit. I'm praying that you incline my heart to your word and away from any other thing in this world. Exert yourself, but don't trust yourself. Exert yourself to delight in the word, but trust God to hear your prayer as he changes your heart, because God enables what he commands. Finally, hearing God produces a prayerful response. I have spent this whole sermon with a focus on the word, on our engaging with the God who speaks, and of hearing the God who speaks, and knowing the God who speaks by his revelation in Scripture. But as this psalm itself demonstrates, the response of knowing God by his word is prayerful. 
The psalmist is speaking his heart out to God even as he confirms the goodness of the word of God speaking to him. He is praying desperately to God, incline my heart, make me wise, guide me in your ways. This is a prayer he speaks back to God. His prayers to God are motivated from his knowledge of God in the word. This is a lesson to us as disciples. As disciples, the prayers of disciples flow out of hearing God speak, of knowing his word and knowing him. That is where we start and what we emphasize as the foundation of Christian prayer. If, if we call ourselves disciples and Christians and we think we can go to God in prayer without first hearing God in his word, we are on dangerous ground. To approach God in prayer, to speak to our creator without first knowing him, without having first heard him, that is not the way of a disciple. It's not even the way of wisdom. It's foolish, if not even dangerous, to approach a king and speak before the king speaks. It's dangerous to approach the king and speak before listening. And so as disciples, we listen to the God who speaks, and we know the king who has made himself known, and then we speak back to him in prayerful response of our knowledge of him. So I can ask you the questions that the disciple was longing for here. Is the scripture sweet as honey to you? Is the Bible better than gold in your life? Is its commandments and promises the rule of your walk? Do you see the scriptures as pure and trustworthy and righteous and wonderful and upright? Every faithful disciple does. Now, we just did one stanza out of 176 verses. But this is what the whole psalm is about. What you will find as you read the entire psalm from beginning to end is that it links almost every aspect of the Christian life to the Word of God. Whether it's sin or suffering or praise or wisdom or opposition or joy, you name it, this writer addresses it. And he says over and over and over again, if you want the knowledge of God in this area of your life, It is found in his word, in his commands, in his decrees, in his promises, in his statutes, in his ways. It's a psalm filled with longing for God and longing for a faithful and upright walk with God, while at the same time trusting that God is the prime mover and motivator and keeper of this affection and desire in the disciple's life. God is the actor who, if we desire it, will enable us in us what he commands, and if we delight in it, will abide in us and cherish through his word. Now, you have every opportunity in life groups, in women of the word, in men of the book, in personal discipleship, on Sunday mornings, in your own quiet times. You have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, as we talked about this morning, in North America, in Halliburton, at Lakeside Church. You have endless opportunity to be engaged with the word of God and to know it and to be taught it and to set your heart on it and to delight in it and in so doing seek after God with your whole heart and let your delight in his word and in him be the catalyst for your prayerful response to him that's what Mr. Wilson is talking about in these two big chapters this week listening to God in his word and responding to God in prayer. And Psalm 119 and what we've unpacked in this stanza just today is the guidance that God gives us in his word of how to be prayerful and delighting disciples in response to his word. Let's pray. Father God, 
What an amazing chapter. Can't deny it's one of my favorites. This disciple of yours, this follower of yours, this songwriter, psalmist, pours out his longing for you. He wants to walk in your ways. And as your disciples, we want to walk in your way. And so create in us, Lord. Incline our hearts to a joyful affection for your word that we delight in it and we delight in you as you speak to us through it. And Father, for those who are not yet disciples, who are still seeking, Father, make it clear they do not have to grope after you. Your light has shone. You have spoken clearly in your word and in your son, and they can know you. You are not to be found in a philosophy or in a theory or in metaphysics or in rare crystals or anything else that's out there. You are right here in your word, as plain as day, and you reveal yourself. Father, I pray that you would be found for those who are seeking even now. In Christ's name, amen.